Well, tonight I am very excited because I get to talk to you guys about one of my favorite topics of any topic that I can talk about. Um, I took three different times when I started my postgraduate work, I took a class that I needed to write a thesis statement like, and actually come, you know, prepare a thesis to write for the, the document for my, my postgraduate work. All three surround, all three times I had to drop out, which is also funny. Um, but they all surrounded one topic, and it was the Holy Spirit. I had one that I was going to do on the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. I had one I was going to do on uh, the Holy Spirit and testimony, so the idea of witnessing, and, and that's also really prevalent in John. We see it a lot. And then the last one was the Holy Spirit and water, Holy Spirit and water, which comes up in this passage in John 3, 5. So I get to talk to you guys about probably my favorite topic in the world. Like I said, I've, I've examined this a lot. I've thought a lot about it. And um, to me, it is the missing piece of the gospel. It's the thing that for some reason people have not clung to the way they should, the way that um, the, the absolute glory of this reality I don't think has sunk in for people. Uh, we think a lot about Jesus. We think a lot about the love of the Father. And what the actual content of the gospel is, is the reality of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And we don't think often about that. In this passage, Jesus lays out the beauty of that reality for us. So I'm really excited to talk about it tonight. Um, to open up in John 2, 23 through 25, that beginning part right there, it says that Jesus was at the festival, right? He was at Passover, and he's in Jerusalem. And while he's in Jerusalem, it says he's doing all kinds of signs, and all these people are believing in his name, and they believe in him. It says, but Jesus did not believe in them. There's a play on words there, right? They believed in Jesus, but he did not believe in them. Well, why? Because he knew where their hearts were. He knew what was in men's heart, is what it says. They, he knew what was in the heart of a man. And the point is that Jesus knew, at least here, and we'll see it further throughout the gospel, that they were believing in the sign. The sign was what they believed in. They didn't believe, believe in Jesus per se, but there was this faith that was a shallow faith that was not deep and real and believing, but it was uh, a faith that merely believed on what they saw. And that's really interesting because that is really an intro to the next stories you're going to read. That part we just read, the reason I put it with this section, is because that is an intro to what we're going to see in the next three or four stories. Jesus knows what's in the heart of a man. And so he approaches Nicodemus knowing Nicodemus's heart. And he approaches the Samaritan woman after that, knowing what's in her heart. And he approaches the nobleman who's going to be at the end of chapter 4, whose son is dying, right? And he knows what is in his heart, right? Because remember, this, the, the man begs him, come with me, come with me. And Jesus says, oh, unless you see a sign, you won't believe. And Jesus says, go, he'll live. And the man leaves because he believes, right? Jesus knew of his faith. So all of these stories that we're about to read in the next you know, section of John are really encapsulated in that piece, okay? Jesus is not entrusting himself to those who are not trustworthy. But he knows what's in them. And that's what sets up this conversation with Nicodemus. 
says he was a man of the Pharisees. So he has some clout and authority. And not only is he a member of the Pharisees, he's a member of what sounds to be the Sanhedrin, right? The, the ruling council. So he's actually even elevated, elevated above a Pharisee in terms of social rank and status. So he's, he's really well-respected, well-known. He's very uh, prestigious as a person, right? And in fact, Jesus even says later, he calls him the teacher of Israel, right? I mean, that's very high praise. So uh, Nicodemus comes, and we see it's at night, which, again, that should be a sign to you, right? If you know what we've read so far in John, the language that is most consistently used, one of the big themes in John is light and dark, right? Light and dark. And so you should have in your mind when you hear Nicodemus coming at night, you should have some idea that uh, something may not be right. Whatever the case, there may be something amiss ahead because it is in dark in which he approaches. It's in dark. And so Nicodemus seems to confess Jesus pretty openly. He says, hey, we believe that you're a teacher who came from God. We know that no one can do signs like you do unless they come from God. Uh, But Jesus, I think Jesus knows that there's not necessarily a, a depth of the reality of the understanding of who Jesus really is. See, they can say he's a teacher. They can say maybe he's a prophet. But they don't understand the reality of who Christ is. They don't understand him as the son of God. They don't understand him as, as Jesus calls himself, the son of man. They just understand him as a teacher. And so Jesus calls him out on it. He calls him out on the fact that he doesn't understand who he really is. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And this is what's interesting. This whole section is littered with double entendres, right? They're, the word plays over and over and over again, and they're throughout this entire section. And this is the first one, born again, right? A concept that is so deeply familiar to us as Christians, especially in America and more Protestant streams, right? That born-again Christian. Um, the word play is, the word in Greek, actually, anothane, uh, it means two things. It can mean again, but it also means from above. From above. So the play on words is this. Even though the word can mean either again or from above, um, Nicodemus misunderstands and thinks it means again when it seems to be fairly clear that Jesus... Now, is the birth again true? That's probably true, but it's not the fullness of what Jesus is trying to explain. He's talking about being born from above. From above. So Nicodemus misunderstands and thinks again, born again, but it's born from above. Right? From heaven. That's the idea. Right? Born from heaven. Born from God. It's that same concept we saw in the prologue, right? Jesus gave the right to become children of God. So born from above. But obviously Nicodemus misunderstands. So what is his thought when he says again? Well, okay, can I enter into my mother's womb and be born again? And so Jesus says, he he further explains himself, right? In 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 verses 4 through 8. You know, Nicodemus says, well, how can I be born again? And Jesus says, no, 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 it's not born again, it's born from above. And the thought that is parallel to born above is being born of water in the Spirit. And there's a lot of different opinions about what being born of water in the Spirit means. Um, I would submit to you that I think that it 
It just means being born of the Spirit. Water there is not a reference to a bunch of other things. It's not a reference to natural birth. It's not a reference to um, baptism even. I think water is just another way of saying being born of the Spirit. And here's why. Uh, The Old Testament consistently uses water imagery for the Spirit. Consistently. And there's all these beautiful passages. I'll read a few of them to you in the Old Testament that ex- make that explicit, that make that connection explicit, okay? A good one is found in Isaiah, Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44 says this, that, But now listen, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, and formed you from the womb, who will help you? Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants, and they will spring up among the grass like poplars by streams of water. In the same way that he talks about pouring out water on the ground, I'm going to pour out my spirit, right? Another example is Joel 2. That's probably the most famous one that most of us know, that pouring out. Right? The pouring out word, that's a water word. Right, We pour out water. We pour out liquid. That's a water word consistently in the way it's consistently used. And of course, the most famous is Joel 2, the prophecy that Peter reads in Acts 2. Right, I'm going to pour out my spirit on your offspring, on your descendants. And then your old men will prophesy and your young men will dream dreams. Right, That pouring out of the spirit. Um, but to me... The greatest, and I get to share what... It's hard for me to say this because I love the Bible so much, but I would say if I had to guess, put my finger on it right now, and you just asked me, and I had to answer, I would say uh, Ezekiel 36 and 37 are my favorite scriptures in the Bible. And so I'm, I'm going to read that to you, but this is clearly the background of what Jesus is about to say. Ezekiel 36 and Ezekiel 37 is the background of this response. Nicodemus. I'm going to read a longer section to you. Uh, if you know, if you know your Bible fairly well, you'll know that Ezekiel 36 is one of the two major new covenant promise passages, right? The other is Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31 is one uh, about the new covenant and he uses that terminology new covenant and Ezekiel 36 is the other. And it's really interesting how this passage is uh, talking about Israel who's forsaken their God, right? They've forsaken their God. Here's what he says. This is uh, God speaking through the prophet Ezekiel. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. You've dishonored it, right? Mm -hmm. That's what profaned means. You've dishonored. You brought shame and dishonor on my name. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you profaned in their midst. The nations will know that I am the Lord when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. And I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Here it is right here. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness, And from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh 
and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers so you will be my people and I will be your God. Moreover, I will save you from all your uncleanness and I will call for the grain and multiply it and will not bring a famine on you. I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the produce of the field so that you will not receive again the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. I am not doing this for your sake, declares the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. This promise in Ezekiel 36 to sprinkle clean water and pour out his spirit is about cleansing, is about purification. That's the birth from above. It's a renewal, a cleansing, a giving of the spirit that like water purifies morally morally purifies in one in one aspect and and also gives a new heart right this is that second birth that we're talking about that born again concept that we get comes from here saying that you will be purified and the spirit is poured out on you like water to cleanse you that's coming from Ezekiel 36 <clears throat> And the reason we know it's coming from Ezekiel 36 is because of what follows it in John 3. Because Ezekiel, just like Ezekiel 37 follows on Ezekiel 36, the next thing that Jesus is going to say is about uh, the spirit and wind. Just like Ezekiel 36 is about spirit and water, Ezekiel 37 is about the spirit and wind. You know the story of Ezekiel 37? Does anyone know what that, what that story is? It's the Valley of the Dry Bones. The most beautiful picture of the new covenant in the entire Bible, in my opinion. The valley of the dry bones. So what Jesus says next is this. That which is born of flesh, this is back in John 3. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit, right? Like follows like, right? If you are born of the flesh, you will be fleshly. If you're born of the Spirit, you will be like the Spirit, right? You share in the nature of the Spirit. Those born of the Spirit share in the nature of the Spirit. They become like Him, right? Like Jesus. Do not be amazed to you that I said you must be born from above. The wind, okay, so here's the play on words again. The word for wind in Greek and Hebrew is the same word they use for spirit. It can be translated wind or spirit, or breath even. That idea of, a, of kind of that moving of air, breath, wind, spirit, that's all the same word. So when he says, uh, do not be amazed, I said you must be born from above, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it. Sound is the same word that they also use for voice. A sound is a voice, right? A voice, a sound escaping from a mouth. So equally could say, the wind blows where it wishes, you hear the sound of it. It could be, the spirit blows where it wishes, and you hear the voice of it, right? Those two ideas, spirit and wind, are also right there. And in Ezekiel 37, what does God tell Ezekiel to do? 
He tells Ezekiel to prophesy to the breath. Prophesy to the breath. Remember Ezekiel standing in the valley. It's the most beautiful picture. Ezekiel stands in the valley of dry bones and it says there are bones everywhere. And it says not only are there bones, but they're very dry. It says they're very dry. What's that mean? It means they've been dead a long time. There's no life left in them. They're brittle. And God says, Ezekiel, prophesy to the breath, which could mean prophesy to the spirit. Say, O breath, go into these bones. And Ezekiel starts to speak, and instantly a great wind comes, and all of the bones are reanimated. They're brought back together, and they all stand up, and they all stand up, and they're just bones. And Ezekiel still, he's speaking, he's prophesying. And then it says the sinews come on them and the tendons and all the joints and ligaments and all the flesh comes back on them. And they're standing there, a great army, but there's no life in them. And so he says again, prophesy to the breath, Ezekiel, that life would come back into those bodies. And Ezekiel does it again, he prophesies. And when he speaks out, the Spirit enters them, and they all live. And at the end of this vision, what does God say to Ezekiel? He says, those bones you saw, those are the houses of Israel and Judah. And they have been dead. But I will restore them to life. That's the new covenant. That we who have all been dead would be restored to life by the Spirit. That is the Spirit's work. To restore to life, to purify. And particularly in this passage where he's quoting Ezekiel 36 and Ezekiel 37, not quoting, but he's alluding to them. What's the Spirit doing for those who have been born from above? To be born from above means to be purified like sprinkled clean water on you. And it means to be given new life, just like the breath in Ezekiel 37. New life. A new birth, right? A a fresh start. However you envision that. New life. And he says, Jesus goes on and says, Um, so it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit, right? The wind blows where it wills, and no one knows where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone born of the Spirit. To be born of the Spirit is to be mysterious to the world, Mm -hmm. just like the Spirit. And I think that's so true, right? Those who are born of the Spirit, those who are born from above, as Jesus says, they're a mystery to the world. The ways they live and the ways they think are a mystery to this world. They don't understand why you would ever sacrifice yourself for another person. Why you would ever give your life for someone else. Why you would ever be generous when you could hoard for yourself. I mean, the ways of the spirit born do not make sense to the world. We're a mystery. And just like the spirit himself is a mystery. And he blows where he wills and does as he wishes. So those born of the spirit 
who have the same nature as the Spirit. They've been changed. They have that new life. They, too, are mysterious to the world. They're, un, they're unintelligible to the world. They don't understand why they do the things they do. And Nicodemus says to him, how can these things be? Be born again, born from above, born again, born from the spirit and water? Nicodemus doesn't understand, in part because he hasn't been born of the spirit. No one has yet, it says in John 7. It says that Jesus had to be glorified before he could pour out the spirit, it says in John 7. Jesus says, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? To me, that's another sign that he that I think confirms to me that he is quoting Ezekiel 36 and 37. Jesus seems to think Nicodemus should understand these things, which probably means he's has an Old Testament background, right? The fact that Nicodemus should understand means that probably there was a scriptural reference he's making. If someone's the teacher of Israel, they should know the scriptures well. And Jesus makes a scriptural argument that he doesn't understand. That he can't, he can't understand what Jesus is talking about. So anyway, what I was saying was um, he doesn't understand. And Jesus says this, and it's interesting. He says, we speak of what we know and testify of what we've seen. You do not accept our testimony. It's interesting he's speaking in the plural. Most everyone doesn't know what to make of that. I think the most likely is he's referring to him and his father. Right? Him and his father speak of what they know and what they've seen. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven. This is a hard phrase in English. I'll try and explain it to you so it makes sense. Uh, the phrase there, but he has descended, he who descended from heaven, this it doesn't make a lot of sense because it makes it sound like no one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, like the one who descended also ascended. That's actually not what it's trying to say. It's not that Jesus, the Son of Man, has ascended into heaven. It's that no one has ascended into heaven, but there is one who has descended from heaven. That's the, that's the idea, right? No one has ever ascended into heaven and come back to be able to speak of the things they've seen. But there is one who was in heaven and descended. That's what it's trying to express. The Son of Man, which is Jesus' favorite self-identification, right? When Jesus talks about himself, the word he likes to use, the, the title he likes to use, is Son of Man. There is none who have ascended into heaven, but the Son of Man, he has descended from heaven. And so what, what does it say to go on? Well, Jesus can therefore speak of heavenly things. No one else has the right to speak of heavenly things because they don't know them. But Jesus does. So he goes on to say, I'm telling you of earthly things and you can't understand, right? Earthly things, scriptural things, things that have been revealed to us. If you can't understand the earthly things, what if I told you the heavenly things? How could you possibly understand those? You don't understand the earthly things. And then he says this, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, 
so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Jesus references another passage now, right? He goes to the Torah, and he goes to Numbers. Numbers 21 is your background there. Numbers 21. And in Numbers 21 is the story of the bronze serpent, right? I'll read it to you. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. Okay, they've been disobedient. They're in the wilderness. That's Numbers. They're again groaning and complaining about what the Lord has provided for them. Okay? And in response to their groaning and complaints, it says, The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with him that he may remove these serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. So the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard. Okay, it's a banner. Set it on a banner. And it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and he set it on the standard. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. He lived. Jesus uses this imagery out of numbers, right? The lifting up on the, the standard, which is, this is a side point. It's not particularly, it's just interesting. The word uh, right there for banner or standard is the word semion, which is sign. Right? Remember Jesus is doing signs. The lifting up of the serpent is a sign. Interesting, right? Jesus' crucifixion may be the ultimate sign that he shows in the Gospel of John. He's showing all these different signs in the Gospel of John, and the, the premier, the excellent of all excellent signs might be the crucifixion itself. And Jesus explains here, just as the bronze serpent was lifted up, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That terminology, lifted up, is used in this Gospel a few times, and every time it's in reference to Jesus' crucifixion. It's always in reference to Jesus' crucifixion. So we know Jesus is talking about his crucifixion here. Right? Obviously, the bronze serpent's not crucified, but the image of it being lifted up is this similar image and looking to it and being saved and that they might live. Jesus he sees that image and thinks, I too will be lifted up and people will look to me and find life. Look to Jesus on the cross to find life. Right? They have to look to the crucified Messiah to find life. It's not enough to believe in the signs, right? Remember what he said at the beginning? He wasn't trusting in those who only believed in the signs. It's not enough to believe that he changed water into wine. You have to believe in the crucified Messiah. That sign is the sign of faith. Believe in the one who died for your sins. And the irony is, I think I told you this for those who hear the first sermon I did on John. In John, the imagery of suffering, the crucifixion, is always tied with glory. It's always tied with glory. In fact, John consistently says that Jesus' glorification is actually his death. His crucifixion, his death, is his glorification. And that lifted up term... Right? That we use it a lot actually. It means to be exalted. Right? He high and lifted up. We talk about the Lord like that. High and lifted up. He is to be exalted, to be praised. 
So it's, again, another play on words. Yeah, he, he will be lifted up. He will be exalted. He will be praised. But he's lifted up on a cross. He's lifted up in suffering and pain and death. But it is his exaltation. It's the very event of his glory that he's crucified on that cross. And then we come to obviously the most famous verse in in all of scripture. The most well-known at least. John 3.16. When I was studying this week, it was really interesting. I'd never heard this said before, but I, I found it intriguing. A lot of scholars think that here in this moment, Jesus is not talking anymore. And this is actually John the narrator talking. And the more I thought about it, the more it kind of made sense to me. Because Jesus, uh, there's a lot of reasons actually it made sense to me. But one, Jesus doesn't typically refer to himself as son of God. He refers to himself as son, as son of man. We just talked about that a second ago. And all the language from the prologue is showing up again. Remember in the prologue, it talked about the only begotten son of God. He starts talking about the begotten son again. Remember in the prologue, it talked about the light has come into the world. And it starts bringing up that light imagery again, the light and dark. And so they say, what some of the scholars think is that this is now John the narrator saying background, right? Jesus has had his conversation with Nicodemus, and now John has this great, he has this moment where he just has to explain. Right? He has to explain what the story is. Now, I don't know. I don't, maybe, maybe, maybe not. But it, is, it, was, it was interesting to me. But the content of it, regardless, is amazing. Whether it's Jesus speaking to Nicodemus or it's John just having to tell his audience what precipitated the Son of Man. The Son of Man coming to be lifted up. How do we make sense of that? How can you make sense of a Messiah coming to die like the bronze serpent be lifted up and crucified? How do we make sense of that? Well, John and Jesus' answer is, For God so loved the world. And it's not that God loved the world so much. He just loves so much. It's that God loved so, right, in this way. This is the way of how God loved. How do we know how God loved us? Well, we know that he sent, he gave his only son. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's how we know how much God loves the world. Because he gave his only son, his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Right? Jesus did not come for condemnation, He came for salvation. Mm -hmm. And in John's theology, why did Jesus not come to condemn? Well, he says next, the world has already been condemned. They are already in their judgment. And how do we know this? Because they did not believe in the Son of God who came. They did not believe in him. So they have already been judged. The world stood condemned because it rejected God 
So Jesus came that he might save some of those who'd already been condemned. Jesus didn't need to condemn them. They were condemned already. Jesus came to save them who had already been condemned. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And here is the judgment. Right? What, what have they been judged on? What's the basis on which they've been judged? It is this. The light came into the world. But men loved the darkness rather than the light. Why did they love darkness rather than light? Who, who could ever love darkness over light? Well, those whose deeds are evil. Those whose deeds are evil love darkness rather than light. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that those evil deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested, it may be shown as having been wrought in God, that these deeds happened through God. John here, you know, we, we think so much in terms of Paul, right? We think of justification by faith. We think of all these, you know, big theological terms that Paul talks to us about, right? And we think about the need that we're all already wicked. We're all already unrighteous, and we need the righteousness of Christ. And that's all true. That's all true. But we're in John, and we're thinking about what John is saying. And John, at this point, is not saying all of those realities of the justification and faith and all those things. He's saying that there's a distinct difference between those of the light and those of the dark. Regardless of how you get in those camps, or if you started in one and moved to another, all of those things are true. But that's not what John wants to point out at this point. That's not what he's trying to say. What John is trying to say is, You can be dark or you can be light. It's an encouragement. Choose. Choose. Are you of those who are dark, whose deeds will be exposed, and you're afraid that they'll be exposed, so you hate the light and you do evil? Or are you those who are of the light, who practice the truth, it says, and you come to the light? Why? Not to show that your deeds are righteous, but to show that your deeds have been manifest that they're manifested through God right that your deeds have come because of God that it was through God that they happened it's not about which you know how how did you get from darkness to light that's not what John's trying to talk about right now John's trying to say think look back assess yourself are you of the camp of dark or are you of the camp of light Think about your works. There is a place in our faith to think about our works. Are we worried about our deeds that are evil and worried about them being exposed, or are we those who practice the truth and live in the light? This whole passage that we just finished is so beautiful to me because it's interesting. It's like the gospel in reverse. We start at the reality of the spirit and new birth. But that, at least in John 3, hasn't even happened yet. Right? 
Jesus hasn't died. The Spirit hasn't been poured out. Nothing has happened. Jesus starts there. He starts at the goal. The goal is that the Spirit would be poured out. He starts at the goal of the gospel, that the Spirit would be poured out on people. And then he, it moves backward. Well, how is that going to be accomplished? Through the mission of the Son. Through the mission of the Son. The being lifted up. But why is the Son even here to be lifted up? Because God loved the world. Not because there was something good and righteous in the world. The world was condemned for its wickedness. He loved it. He loved it with a faithful love despite its wickedness. The grounding of all of these realities, the grounding of why Jesus came and did his mission, the grounding of why the Spirit dwells among us and we have been given purified life, right? Morally pure life and why we've been given new life in the Spirit is all grounded in the fact that the Father loves this evil world. That's the basis of all of it. Without merit, undeserved, we're a wicked and evil people who love darkness rather than light. And God loved that world and sent his Son so that those of us in this room right now who believe in Jesus have been given new life, Mm -hmm. a birth from above, a new spirit. All those promises of Ezekiel have been poured out on us. We too were once dead like those bones standing with flesh but no life in us. And the spirit, Jesus poured out the spirit and gave us new life and purified life. That is the gospel. The goal of the gospel was the spirit dwelling among us. And Ezekiel puts it best, that he would be our God and we would be his people. That's the goal of everything. That's the goal of Christianity. It's the goal of everything in this world was that God would be our God, we would be his people, and he would dwell among us. That's the theme of the Bible. All of this was bringing us from a place where we had no connection with God. He couldn't be our God. We could not be his people, and he couldn't dwell among us to bring us to that reality where he could dwell among us, he would be our God, and we could be his people. And that's what we have to share. That's the testimony we have to share. That's the peace in John that is, is going to come back over and over and over again. That is the gospel, the good news that John has to share is that in believing in Jesus, you can have that new, purified life from above, born of water and the Spirit. And that life is eternal life. And it starts now. Before we get to eternity, it starts in now, when we're born again, born from above. That's what we have to share with people, and we need to. We need to share that reality. The promise of life, not just after death, but life now. People need life. They're starving for life. The Spirit offers us that. Jesus offers us that by giving us the Spirit. That's what we have to offer to other people. So let's do that. Let's do that. As we go through the rest of this book, uh, this passage looms large. As we go through the rest of this book, this passage looms large as we understand how much God loved this world.
how much the Son gave for it, and how much the Spirit is changing it. All right, let, let me bless you. Let me bless you, and then we can pray. Father, I thank you for every person in this room. Lord, I pray that they would be touched anew by the story of the gospel, that your indwelling spirit would feed their souls, give them uh, purity, what they feel they need to confess, what they confess to you, would they feel purified and guilt-free, would they feel that they have new life once again as your spirit constantly reminds us and gives us new daily mercies, new uh, purity, new empowerment. I pray all of that for these people in this room. I pray they would ground themselves in the love of you, Father, and I pray they would always remember and look to what Jesus did for them. In Jesus' name. Love you all. Love you all. Thank you. Thank you.